Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. I started uh, a couple Sundays ago preaching through the book of Nehemiah. We're now at the start of chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, just a couple books after the Psalms. You can just go to the middle and look right, and you'll hit it. Nehemiah 2, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 9 this morning. Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 9. Let's pray before we read. Well, Father God, we do believe that Jesus is better. That Jesus is, is, is better than all other things. That um, Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. And when a, a man or a woman or a child finds that treasure, uh, that person within gladly sell all to have the treasure. It just happens instantly, joyfully giving up all to have the treasure named Jesus. We believe Jesus is better. And Father, we would simply ask now that as we open your word that uh, you would lift Jesus high in our midst again here today. We would see him as the treasure he is and our hearts would be gripped again. Our affections would be gripped again this morning for the beauties of Christ And Lord, we know when that happens, we just gladly let go of things on this earth and we gladly run after Jesus. And so Lord, that's the key, that you would help us to behold Jesus in your word. Father, it's so easy to go to the Bible and miss Jesus. And we just ask that you'd help this morning, Father. Our eyes are spiritualized to behold Jesus in the book of Nehemiah. And we know our hearts will be gripped when that happens. So we thank you for it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Amen. That's the word of the living God. I have uh, I've never been a great chess player. <laughs> I actually got on my computer this week. I found out that you could play chess on your Mac computer, and I played for about three moves and thought, who, who am I kidding here? It could be on the kindergarten letter, level, and I would, would get beaten. Uh, actually hated the game when I was young, my older brother's fault. Uh, he is highly intelligent, and he would uh, regularly get me to play chess with him and then systematically annihilate me (laughs) in just a matter of moves. And surprisingly, I grew up to despise the game of chess, but others seem to love it, and, and some people are very good at it. There's some great chess players in history. Garry Kasparov, the youngest world champion at age 22, won the title 11 times in a row. Bobby Fischer, at the age of 13, he won a match that people now call the game of the century. And now Magnus Carlsen, only 
26, who right now has, is dominating and began to dominate also at the age of 13. But you know, you know who the greatest chess player in history probably is? <laughs> well, that's God. <laughs> you may not know this, but the God of this universe is actually a fantastic chess player. But here's the thing, he's just a different kind of chess player. God doesn't move little black and white pieces around a little board. No, God moves people around the globe. God moves people and He orders circumstances to carry out His eternal plan. The Bible says that God is sovereign. And sovereign means that God is ultimately in control of everything in this universe. Not one single atom in this universe ultimately outside of His control. A.W. Pink, in his book, Attributes of God, he defines God's sovereignty like this, if you throw that on the screen. Here's A.W. Pink's definition of God's sovereignty. Being infinitely elevated above the highest creature, God is the Most High, Lord of heaven and earth. Subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent, God does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases. None can thwart Him, none can hinder Him. He is on the throne of the universe, directing all things, working all things after the counsel of His own will. The ultimate sovereign in our universe. Constantly moving people, constantly ordering circumstances, directing all things after the counsel of His own will. And you know, all we often see in this world are the people. The circumstances moving around in this world. The moving pieces. But you know, behind every moving peace is a sovereign hand, the oftentimes hidden and mysterious hand of God. And at this point in the Bible, at this point in history here in the book of Nehemiah, God was definitely moving some very big pieces to accomplish His plan. And just to remind you quickly here of where we are at this time in history, several hundred years before Nehemiah uh, was born, the people of Israel were sinning against God in major ways, and God's judgment finally came. The Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, they invaded Israel, uh, tore the city of Jerusalem down, took the people into exile in Babylon, which later became Persia, some 900 miles away from Israel. But after 70 years there in exile, the king of Persia, Cyrus, he wrote a decree that the people of Israel should now return to Israel, to Jerusalem, and rebuild the city. And several waves of exiles then did return to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, here in this book, he will lead the third and final wave of exiles back to Jerusalem, and Nehemiah will return to build. He'll build the city walls around Jerusalem, build some of the city itself. He will build the people in Jerusalem, leading them back to God. There are lots of big moving pieces at this time in history. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Cyrus, Nehemiah, Ezra, all kinds of moving pieces. But behind every moving piece, was a sovereign hand. God ultimately moving those pieces. And listen, the Bible tells us about it. The Bible wants us to know that God was the hand moving those pieces. You know, when Nebuchadnezzar initially invaded Israel, well, the Bible wants you to know that God was the one who ultimately moved Nebuchadnezzar to invade Israel. Here it is, Jeremiah 25, verse 8. Before he ever invaded, the Bible says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you, Israel, have not obeyed my words, behold, 
I will send. For all the tribes of the north declares the Lord, and I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I, the Lord says, will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. The sovereign hand of God moving King Nebuchadnezzar to invade. And the decree that Cyrus later wrote that allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Well, the Bible wants you to know again that God was the one who ultimately moved Cyrus to write that decree. Here it is, Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among, among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. Again, the Bible wants you to see the sovereign hand of God move pieces to accomplish his eternal will and that brings us to where we are here in chapter 2 Nehemiah is still in exile here in Persia at this time in chapter 1 he heard that Jerusalem was still in shambles the people there in great trouble and shame Nehemiah then along with some of his friends began to pray and fast and chapter 1 says that they were asking God for favor with the king of Persia at this time, King Artaxerxes. And once again, in this passage here, we see the one true God, the master chess player of the universe, sovereignly moving pieces to carry out his eternal plan. Let's just walk through the passage here. The first thing here we see is a question from King Artaxerxes. And it comes about like this. You look at verse 1 again. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, Nehemiah first heard about the devastation there in Jerusalem. He heard about it and began to pray in the month of Kislev. November or December. And it is now the month of Nisan, March or April. So it has now been three to five months of persistent, ongoing prayer and fasting from Nehemiah and his friends. It's a great reminder to us that, that even when God's people pray, even when they pray prayers that God has laid on their hearts to pray, that the answer still might not come immediately. There may be a long delay between the start of the prayers and the answer to the prayers. And many people pray once and give up. And God wants us to pray, persevering in prayer, waiting for His answer, trusting His answer to come. And Nehemiah and his friends did. And now after three to five months of persistent prayer... It looks here now all of a sudden like Nehemiah has a small open door with King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah says here that wine was before the king, which probably just means that they were at some dinner party or, or banquet here. It was most likely not a public banquet because we'll read later that the queen was there at this party or whatever it was and the queen never attended public banquets so this is maybe some sort of private dinner party or private banquet you can you can picture king artaxerxes there his queen uh, her name was damaspia uh, also maybe some officials of the land here in this room uh, nehemiah has already tasted the king's wine now serving the wine to the king and listen nehemiah was 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 the cupbearer that was his position it was an incredibly important position back in the ancient middle east kings back then were frequently assassinated even Artaxerxes' own father had been assassinated in his own bedroom. 
So this king, Artaxerxes, he understands assassination very well. And the cupbearer's job was to drink the king's wine, taste his food before he did in case there was poison in it. And if there was poison in it, so long cupbearer, but long live the king. And that was Nehemiah's position here. But listen, the cupbearer had more duties than this. The cupbearer was also in charge of guarding the king's royal chamber, the most intimate parts of the king's life. The, the cupbearer was, was, was sort of a protective screen of sorts between the king and the outside world. And that was Nehemiah. And you can see that he was a trusted man because he's a foreigner. And here he is playing this uh, very trusted position for King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah was now with the king at this dinner party. But Nehemiah's face here looked very different to the king. You look at the end of verse 1. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And he's probably saying there I had not been sad in the king's presence before. But now I was here on this occasion. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And you just think of Nehemiah here, even though he's been, he's been fasting and praying for months, grieving over Jerusalem, it, it appears that Nehemiah has, has kept up his appearances before the king, but his grief now suddenly shows before the king. And you know, it, it is possible that Nehemiah's sadness here was by design. That he had maybe chosen this particular moment to show his grief before the king. Herodotus, the Greek historian, he said that the Persian kings had a certain feast once a year. And their custom at this particular feast was to show lavish generosity to their officials. Herodotus said that generosity was, quote, the law of this feast, and no one who asked a boon or, or a favor that day at the king's board could be denied. And it's possible then that this was the feast, and Nehemiah has planned to show his sadness to the king right here because he wants to ask the king for something but but I think it's probably more likely that Nehemiah did not plan this sadness it 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 just happened and you you know how it is you you carry grief in your heart for a long time it eventually shows on your face Nehemiah's been carrying sadness for months now uh, asking God for favor with the king, probably wondering how he would ever approach the king about this. And this grief in his heart, I think, has probably begun to show in a very unplanned way, distracted maybe by his cupbearer duties. And Nehemiah all of a sudden, as we might say, was wearing his emotions on his sleeve. And the king sees it and asks him a question Nehemiah, why are you sad? And you know, you would, you'd maybe think that Nehemiah would be happy here <laughs> that the king has noticed his sadness and asked him about it. You and I, when we are grieving over something, we're typically relieved when somebody sees it and asks us, are you okay? You don't look great. You look sad. Are you, are you okay today? You'd think Nehemiah might be happy. He might have a chance to now talk to the king about this thing. Nehemiah is terrified. Nehemiah says he is very much afraid here. And why? Well, I, I think it's simply because the king could now kill him. You know, palace etiquette in Persia at this time, it required that all cupbearers be pleasant before the king, happy at all times before the king. And it was some sort of compliment to the king, as if to be in his presence just filled you with joy at all times. Sadness before the king in Persia was a treasonable insult. And the kings in Persia 
were notoriously ruthless. Would have been nothing for King Artaxerxes to execute Nehemiah on the spot for his sadness in his presence. You know, Molly and I have watched, um, we like to watch documentaries sometimes in the evening. We watch some on North Korea. That place is crazy. Uh, I'm telling you what, man. I have seriously prayed for the people in North Korea because the leadership there is wacko. Killing people for the slightest reason. And you can see in the documentary the people, whenever they're around the leadership, just smiling constantly, afraid of offending the leadership for what they might do. And I think there's something like that going on here probably. But you know, I think there's a second reason why Nehemiah was terrified here. He knows this is his moment. He knows that he's now going to ask this king if he can go back to Jerusalem, take some exiles there, and rebuild the city. And this king here had recently put a stop to all building there in Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 4, we learned that the Jews who were already back there in Jerusalem, they had already tried to rebuild the walls. And this king Artaxerxes had put a stop to it. Because the enemies of the Jews freaked him out. Told King Artaxerxes that they were going to rebuild the city and then revolt against him. So he wrote a royal decree that all building in Jerusalem would cease. And Nehemiah knows here that he must now ask the king to revoke this royal decree. A request that could easily make the king suspicious of his loyalty, and could easily provoke the king to wrath. And Proverbs 16, 14 says that a king's wrath is a messenger of death. And Nehemiah knows it. So that's the question here from the king, this provoking question from the king. And that kind of sparks the second thing here, a conversation with the king. You look at verse 3. Nehemiah responds, I said to the king, well, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? <laughs> and man, listen, you, you want to know how to respond to your boss in a sticky situation? <laughs> Study that right there, because man, that is perfect. Uh, Nehemiah, as we might say, nailed it uh, with, his, with his boss here. He starts out just with this compliment, this, this thing, let the king live forever. Long live the king. And I don't think that was a throwaway phrase from Nehemiah. I think that was his simple way of affirming his loyalty to the king and just indicating to the king, man, I'm in no way looking to revolt against you here. And then Nehemiah quickly just states the true reason for his fallen countenance. The city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins. That's why I'm grieving before you, king. And, and notice kind of how Nehemiah packages this thing here. He never mentions the name Jerusalem, a name that could have put the king on guard immediately, even maybe provoked his wrath. Dale Carnegie once said, if you want to gather honey, don't kick over the beehive. And Nehemiah wants to gather some honey here from the king. And he's very wise in how he does it. So he doesn't kick over the proverbial beehive and provoke the, the king unduly to anger here. So he presents his case here, not as some sort of political issue, but as a personal issue. And he was telling the truth. My father's graves, my ancestors' graves are in ruin. Indeed, man, that would have been part of Nehemiah's sadness. Respect for ancestral tombs back at this time was universal. People respected the tombs of ancestors, especially kings. A deep respect for ancestral tombs. And Nehemiah here, man, he's hoping to evoke um, some sympathy from the king. 
And the king responds, if you look at verse 4, the king said to me, what are you requesting? <laughs> you just picture Nehemiah right here. A lot going on behind the scenes. And uh, Nehemiah is now in a very precarious position. Nehemiah's answer could get him killed. So what does he do? Well, first things first. If you look at the end of verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. Man, such a great statement there. So I prayed. What did that look like? You know, it's probably not this uh, extended, concentrated time of prayer here for Nehemiah. Hang on, king. I got to go have a quiet time. And he runs back home and he prays for the next hour and comes back and answered. No, no, no. Nehemiah had already done that. Multiple times of extended, concentrated, daily prayer and fasting from Nehemiah. But that prayer right there, that's what many people call an arrow prayer or a breath prayer. Cyril Barber Barber calls it a prayerogram. (laughs) You have very little time on the fly. A difficult situation hits you. Just a couple seconds to spare. Maybe don't even pray it out loud. Just turn your heart to God. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Give me favor. Give me favor right now, Lord God. Give me favor right now with this king. It is do or die right now for me. Give me favor with this king. And man, I do think we can learn something very important about prayer right there. A vibrant prayer life. It consists both of daily scheduled times of extended concentrated prayer, but also then prayers on the fly, arrow prayers as you go through the day as situations arise. We see that with Jesus. Jesus frequently pulled away for concentrated, extended prayer, praying all night long at times. But then you also see Jesus praying arrow prayers, the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees, the cross, crying out on the cross. And man, that first type of prayer, the concentrated, extended daily prayer, that that typically overflows into that second type of prayer. Arrow prayers. If you, if you are praying daily in secret, scheduled extended times of prayer, when you are then hit during the day with a difficult situation, your heart will tend to overflow with arrow prayers. Help me God. Help me God. Help me God. You're used to praying that. But if you're not praying daily, If you're not spending that time, extended, concentrated prayer in a difficult situation that comes your way during the day, your heart probably won't naturally overflow with prayer. You probably won't look to God in that instance You'll look to yourself. You'll look to your own resources, your own abilities, your own skills. You'll look to yourself, a self-sufficiency. Nehemiah prayed daily. And when push came to shove right here in this situation, when push came to shove, his heart of prayer overflowed in this arrow prayer, Help me God! Heal me, God, right now. And he then braces himself and he replies to the king. J.I. Packer says that Nehemiah now asks the king if he can go from cupbearing to construction. If it pleases the king, he says. And if your servant has found favor in your sight. If I have found favor in your sight, which I've been praying for for days... 
then please send me back to Judah, the city of my father's grave, in order that I might rebuild it, which means, King Artaxerxes, that you will need to revoke your royal decree. And man, the king's very quick response here probably shocked Nehemiah. You look at verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Okay. Do it. Do it. Cupbearer, grab your hat, your hard hat. Get ready. Take some exiles back to your city, which I know is Jerusalem, and rebuild it. I will revoke my royal decree. It's a miracle, really. Now, I think sometimes we, we think miracles are only just supernatural displays of massive power. That, that's a miracle. There's no supernatural display of power, and yet a miracle. A Persian king changes his royal, request, royal decree at the request of a little cupbearer. Nehemiah had prayed for favor, and man, he just got it from the king. You know you can pray for favor with people? Do you know you can do that? God, give me favor with my boss today. God, give me favor with, with, with this person in my church. God, give me favor today with, with my neighbor. Nehemiah prayed for it and he got it. And once Nehemiah receives a little bit of favor here from the king and the king says he can go back, man, I mean, Nehemiah then just goes for it. And he quickly asks for several other things right in a row. Look at verse 7. And then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. You know know what that's like right there? That's kind of like my kids. (laughs) <laughs> man, you give, you give my precious kids an inch and they will take a mile. <laughs> Can we have ice cream tonight, Daddy? Why, yes, I think I'll give you ice cream tonight. Great, great, thanks, Daddy. Uh, a banana split with sprinkles on it, crushed candy all over the top, a huge Coke and a cookie as big as my face. No, maybe not that, but maybe just the, the ice cream. Man, Nehemiah got an inch, and he, then, he goes for a mile here. He feels that God has given him favor with the king, and now he just steps out on that favor, and he goes for it. He asks for two things very quickly. One, king, can you give me a passport? Can you give me letters? For the governors in the province, provinces along the way, those who rule those areas, so they'll let me pass through. King, you give me an imperial passport with your signature and your picture stamped on it. And two, since I'm asking, can you give me some wood? <laughs> because we're going to need a lot of wood. Can you give me a letter for Asaph, the keeper of the forest near Jerusalem, so he'll give me lumber for the gates, the city walls, my own house? You see what he's basically asking right there. King, will you basically just give me your visa and fund the entire project? <laughs> You gotta love Nehemiah, man. You talk about boldness. This king was staunchly opposed to this thing, and now King Nehemiah is asking him to fund it. <laughs> and you know, when you step back and look at what Nehemiah just did right there, this man Nehemiah, man, he he was not just just kind of flying by the seat of his pants there, just kind of off the cuff, suddenly thinking of things they might need for for this project. No, this man had thought about it. He was ready for this moment. The king asks how long he'd be gone. He quickly gives him the time. And then he quickly asks the king for two more things that he knows that he'll need for the project. And notice that he even knows the name of the lumberman who lives back around Jerusalem. His name is Asaph. Why does a cupbearer know the name of the construction man in Jerusalem? Nehemiah had prepared. Nehemiah had planned. Nehemiah had thought through every last 
bit of this project. And, and I think that teaches us something right there about God's sovereignty. Nehemiah knows that God is sovereign. He knows God is sovereign over the people and the circumstances of this earth. Nehemiah will even talk about God's, God's sovereignty in just a second. But listen, God's sovereignty, when you understand it correctly, it does not keep you from praying and planning and working. Some people think that if God is sovereign... If God is in control over all things, well, you don't really need to pray then, right? If God wants something to happen, it'll just happen. Doesn't matter what you do. Pray, don't pray. It doesn't matter. And you, don't, you definitely don't need to plan for that thing to happen. And you definitely don't need to labor for that thing to happen. Just sit back and trust the sovereign God. If God wants to bring my neighbors into his kingdom, well, he'll just do it. I don't need to pray for it. I don't need to plan for it. I, I don't need to labor for it. It'll just happen. God, God is sovereign, right? I mean, man, that is a seriously faulty view of God's sovereignty. Yes, God is sovereign over all things. No one can thwart his eternal plan. But listen, God has sovereignly ordained to accomplish his eternal plan through certain means. And some of the means through which God has ordained to accomplish his eternal plan are prayer and planning and labor. When God wants to do something, accomplish something in this world, like the rebuilding of Jerusalem here, or like bringing unbelievers into his kingdom, what does God do? Well, he stirs up people to pray for it. And he stirs people up to plan for it. And he stirs people up to labor for it. And God then works through their prayers and plans and labor to accomplish his eternal will. Listen, God's, God's sovereignty is not a license to disengage and be lazy. The soldiers, <laughs> the soldiers of the Revolutionary War, they had the balance right. Here's one of their favorite mottos. Trust the Lord and keep your gunpowder dry. <laughs> trust the Lord. Trust in a sovereign God to win the war for us. And do everything you can to win the war. Trust in the sovereign God to win the war for us and do everything you can to win the war. Are you out of a job? Trust the sovereign God and pray and pound the pavement to get a job. Are you single and you like to be married? Trust the sovereign God and pray and do everything you can to prepare yourself for marriage. Do you want your neighbors to come into the kingdom? Trust the sovereign God and pray and do everything you can to bring them into the kingdom. Are you teaching Sunday school or preaching? Trust the sovereign God to do something in and through your teaching or preaching and then pray and keep your backside in the seat until you understand the passage and can explain it clearly. God is sovereign, so trust Him and keep your gunpowder dry. Pray and plan and labor hard. And that was Nehemiah. So there's this question from the king. It sparks this conversation with the king. And the last thing here, a final grant from the king. You look at the end of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. <laughs> Everything he just asked for. The king granted it. Crazy when you think about it. This king had written a royal decree to stop the building there in Jerusalem. This king is suspicious of building there in Jerusalem. And a little cupbearer 
in about two seconds flat, says he wants to go back and build the city, asks the king to revoke his royal decree, wants a passport and lumber to go and do it. And the king, hardly batting an eye, says, yes, that's a fantastic idea. Why don't you go there and do that? I'll give you all that you need. And you know what's crazy here is that the king gave Nehemiah even more than he had asked for. If you look at verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river after the long trek back to Jerusalem. Gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. (laughs) I'll let you go back and I'm going to send you back with a military, (laughs) with a military trade, a convoy, the presidential limo, an armed escort. And when we learn in chapter five that the king even made Nehemiah governor over the area around Jerusalem. (laughs) This right here, man, you, you stop and think about, this is a complete 180 for this king. He goes from staunchly opposed to joyfully funding in a matter of seconds. This is a radical change of heart for this king. And why does he do it? Well, Nehemiah tells us. Look at the end of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah knows here it wasn't because of his skill, it wasn't because of his courage, it wasn't because of his gifts of persuasion. No, he knows the good hand of God was upon me. You know, Nehemiah does some great things in this book. Please don't get too enamored with Nehemiah. Because when it's all said and done, He's just a small moving piece on a massive chessboard. And behind every moving piece is a sovereign hand. God had planned to do something here in human history. God had planned to rebuild Jerusalem. So what did God do? He used the means that He had ordained. He stirred some people up to pray for it. He stirred some people up to plan for it. He stirred some people up to get them ready to labor for it. And then he stirred one man up here and emboldened one man to actually go before the king and ask for it. And God then worked through those means to accomplish that which he had decreed to do. Rebuild Jerusalem. And man, God has now turned the heart of another foreign, pagan, unbelieving king. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and now Artaxerxes. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God has sovereignly turned the heart of another king. He's given Nehemiah here the favor that he was praying for. He's given him way more than he prayed for. Even a passport, lumber, military escort. Ephesians 3.20 God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And there it is, man. And every last bit of that right there in that passage, it all happened simply because the good hand of God was on Nehemiah. And that phrase there, the hand of God on me, it's a very important phrase in the Bible. We actually see that phrase eight different times in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah alone. Here's just a taste. Ezra 7.28, if you throw that on the screen. This Ezra went up from Babylon before Nehemiah to Jerusalem. He went up. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted Ezra all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. 
Or Ezra 7.28. Ezra says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And we can also see it much later here with John the Baptist after he was born. Luke 1.66. The people said, what then will this child John, John be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And then we see it again later with the early Christians, Acts 11.21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And all kinds of places in the Bible where the hand of God was with people for good, and God then ordered people around them, ordered the circumstances around them to carry out His eternal plan. And we see it there with Nehemiah, the hidden hand of a sovereign God on Nehemiah for good, God moving people around him, God ordering circumstances around him for His glory and for the eternal joy of God's people. But man, listen, Nehemiah right there, Nehemiah there, that that right there, that is just a small picture, a tiny foreshadowing of someone much greater who would come after Nehemiah. 400 years after those events right there, another man showed up on this earth and the good hand of God was upon this man in a supreme and infinite way. Because this man was God's own son. Jesus Christ. And the good hand of God the Father was on Jesus. Like on no other man before Him. The infinite favor of the Father resting on Him like no other man in human history. We can see the Father's good hand of favor upon Jesus at His baptism, the early, early part of His ministry, Matthew three seventeen. The Father speaking from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we can see the Father's good hand of favor upon Him at His transfiguration. Luke 9.35, again, the Father speaking from heaven, this is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. God the Father's hand upon Jesus always for good. His hand of favor on Jesus throughout His entire life. But then we see something incredibly shocking. All of a sudden, the Father's hand was no longer upon Jesus for good. On the cross, for the first time ever, the Father's good hand was removed. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who put Jesus there on the cross? Who crucified him at that moment? You know, you could say that Judas did it. Pilate did it. Religious leaders did it. You could say the angry mob did it. And those things are all true to some degree. But please listen, all of those people there were really just small moving pieces on a massive chessboard. And behind every moving piece is a sovereign hand. Who ultimately crucified Jesus? God the Father did. Sacrificing His own Son for sinners. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said this, Acts 2.22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Sinful people carried it out, but the sovereign hand of God was over the entire thing. And why did the Father do it? For sinners like you and me. Father took the sin of sinners like you and me, placed those sins upon His own Son, punished His Son for our sin. He removed His hand of favor from His Son. 
and he replaced it with his hand of wrath. No longer on Jesus for good, but upon him for bad. Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But here's the amazing thing. Because Jesus did that, because the Father did that, that sacrifice, here it is. The hand of God the Father can now be upon you for good. You see, when you come into this life, the hand of the Father is not on you for good. The Bible says you're a sinner. And because of that, God's hand of favor is not on you. You're actually under His hand of wrath. But Jesus took our place on the cross. He willingly gave up the good hand of God, the hand of favor that He deserved, and He took the hand of wrath that we deserved. And if you now simply turn from your sin in repentance and you cling to Christ and you trust in and you follow Christ, guess what? God removes His hand of wrath from you. And He places over you His hand of favor. And His hand, the hand of God, is now upon you for good. Forever and ever and ever. He'll still discipline you at times as His child when you've gone astray. But listen, every bit of His discipline for you, it's now coming from a hand of love for you. And God will now move people around you. He'll order circumstances around you to carry out His eternal plan in and through you. Always now working in and through you for His glory and your eternal joy. You won't always see His good hand in your life. There will be times all you see is the people and circumstances and you don't know how God could possibly be working in this for my good or the good of anybody. But listen, the Bible calls us as believers to walk not by sight, but by faith. And God has promised to you that if you are in Christ, He will never, ever, ever leave you. His hand, His good hand of favor, will remain upon you forever. You trust Him. Jesus is the better Nehemiah. The good hand of God was upon Nehemiah, and He brought people out of exile in Persia. But the good hand of of God was on Jesus in an infinite, supreme way. He brings people out of exile to sin and death. Trust Him. And the Father's good hand will be upon you forever. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord God, for Your grace. Thank You, Father, that You are a God who though we deserve the hand of wrath, You placed it upon Your own Son. gave us the hand of favor in Christ. Your hand upon us for good. (laughs) What can you say to that? But thank You. We thank You for Your good, kind hand upon us, Lord God. As we head into the Lord's Supper now, I pray You bless us, Lord, with those things in mind. In the name of Jesus, Amen.